0: Well, good morning. It is uh, great to have all of you here, whether you're at your uh, home right now, maybe uh, either by yourself, or maybe you're with a group of people. Or uh, great to have just, uh, we have a handful of people that are uh, here this morning. Great to have you as well. So as uh, Ryan was saying, we're in the series on the Sermon on the Mount. And to think of it as kind of like this tour, uh, this just keeps revealing more and more about the kingdom of God. And when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, think about the Sermon on the Mount as a sermon, a single sermon that was meant and preached by Christ to drive to kind of a more singular kind of purpose, the way a sermon would be designed. Because sometimes we think about the Sermon on the Mount and we want to pull it uh, apart in a 1,000 different ways and we don't realize how much it all relates. And so that's why we think of it as kind of a tour that's all related and we're just seeing different aspects, but it's all kind of going to the same place. And this morning, uh, the place uh, that I want us to end up landing is uh, going to be uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you want, you can go ahead and turn there. And we're going we're to look um, uh, several verses into it this morning. But the place we're going to look at this is really kind of getting at this thing where what do you do uh, when, you, when you have relational struggles? How, what's the kingdom look like in the middle of a relational struggle? Because sometimes it can be hard to try and live that out. Um, in a way that you think really aligns with uh, what God has designed. Uh, let me ask you this question. Have you have you ever, like, had a moment of great sincerity in your spiritual walk or journey? You say, I'm just really going to try this and live this out. But in some way, it just, it left you, like, empty. Or you're just like, man, I tried and I tried. But, like, I still feel that void. I don't, like, there's something missing in all of this. And, And as Christians, sometimes we can go through these different iterations, kind of trying to find that right formula or whatever. And in some ways, as we dive into the application of this near the end of the message, I hope that you come to see that Jesus is kind of offering this different way that can actually help us find something that is really relatable in something with great potency in our spiritual journeys. Now, to get there, though, uh, I want to I kind of review part of this tour. Because again, it's, uh, it's all related here. And there are kind of different stops along this tour that Jesus takes. So let me just review a couple of them. And then we're going to land in verses, uh, it's about 21 through 26 in uh, chapter uh, 5. But he starts off at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And kind of the first stop is this stop is all about answering the question, who's included in the kingdom of God, right? And it goes through this section, and uh, Ryan talked a little bit about this last week. And, and the thing that you get out of this section is like all of these people that maybe we would have thought of is not being included. It's like Jesus is going through this thing and it's like, wow, they're included and they're included and they're included because the reality is what Jesus is wanting people to understand is his kingdom is for everyone and anyone. Like there's, there's no one that Jesus looks at and says, no, I'm not gonna make a way for you. And that would have been very surprising to a lot of people, especially back in the first century when Jesus is teaching this, because they would have had a strong notion of who would be in and who would be out. And Jesus saying, my kingdom, I wanna make room for anyone that would be willing to follow me. Right? It's this beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, kind of the, the next stop on this uh, tour as we're uh, looking at this uh, deals with this issue. And it's um, uh, who who you are. It's kind of an identity one. The, the next one, it's like, who are we in God's kingdom? Who are you? Who am I? And he does this by making kind of these declarative statements about who's in the kingdom and, and who they are. I remember when uh, my kids were really young, Angie and I, this was really important for us. Like we wanted them to have this strong identity of, of who they were because we just knew that like, as they navigate life, like if they didn't have this deep sense of what it meant to belong to this family, like it wouldn't carry them. And so we used this phrase and maybe some of you uh, had things like this in your family, uh, but we would say, you know, you're a Bartow right? And then we would follow it with something, you know, like Bartos, dot, dot, dot. One of them uh, with my son Chandler, as he was starting to get, you know, just a, a little bit older and could like help me do yard work or do things around the house or whatever, it was Bartos work hard, right? And he just like, oh, you know, I just, why? And <clears throat> one time I caught him saying, why did I have to be born into this family? You know, of all the a family that has to work hard, that's, uh, you know, let's just, what about the lazy families? Why couldn't I belong to one of those families? That, that'd be a great identity. I could live up to that identity really easy, right? Um, and, you know, I kind of drill that into him. You know, Bartos work hard. You know, your, your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers before you and them, they were all hard workers, and that's who you are, right? And was like, okay, you know? But uh, one of the other things that was really important to us when it came to their identity is we wanted them to know Beyond a shadow of a doubt, we wanted them to know and understand that part of their identity as being a Bartow was you are loved unconditionally, unequivocally all of the time. There, There is nothing you can do to take that away. It is like unconditional because we knew that as they navigated life and as they grew up to hold that not just as something that was conditional that would be there if they did enough or if they were pleasing, but like... Like, that was there because it is who they were all of the time. Like, we knew that would be so important, right? Because that sense of identity carries you through in different moments. You know, one of the things that my dad used to say to me that I passed on to my kids was, my dad had this phrase, because he worked in construction, and, you know, if something would go uh, wrong or whatever, what you didn't need was somebody panicking. And he had this phrase, he said, and he would say it real calmly. He'd say, you know, if you panic, you die just like, you know, you know, a piece of equipment catches on fire. I had a, I was running a heavy piece of equipment one time and it caught on fire. And, um, it was a, a large loader had a diesel engine. And because the turbo was still spinning, there was a leak and it kept pouring, uh, uh screaming hot oil onto the engine and an engine. And it just kept feeding this fire. And I remember like, and I'm like, okay, no panic. You die. Panic. You die. And again, I, okay, just, you know, and I went through this thing. And so I would like pass that on to my kids. Like, okay, you panic, you die. And and, I, and my daughter, Coley would be like, wow, dad, that's kind of extreme, you know? And I was like, okay, well, you know, but you're a Barto, panic, you die, you know? And one time we were on the uh, the three of us, I was, uh, Angie was the smart one. She stayed on the shore. And I took Chandler and Coley in a three-man kayak. And, you know, we're trying to go out into the, into the water and we didn't know what we were doing and we were getting all sideways and the waves were getting, you know, just like, okay, panic, you die, panic, you die. And, you know, and they're like, okay, okay. And just, you know, like, and it's just, it becomes this grounding that, that helps you through those difficult moments. I also told them we're going to be like a Swiss watch, but we weren't very much like a Swiss watch, but we didn't panic. And here we are today, right? Um, uh, it's, it's, right, it's this thing that having that sense of identity is so important. So this first stop on the, or excuse me, this second stop on this tour is there's something that Jesus wants us to know about who we are. And he does this through these two super strong declarative statements about who we are. And this morning, I'm going to just, I'm going to only just look at one. And maybe if we get a chance, we'll come back another uh, Sunday or day and look at the other one. But the first one is this. He says these words, he says, you are, that's right that declared a feast. You are the salt of the earth, he says. "You are the, That is who you are. He doesn't say, okay, I want you to work to be this. You need to achieve. It is, this is who you are. In my kingdom, I want you to know and think that you are the salt of the earth. Now, there are all of these beautiful, magnificent implications about what it is to be salt and the characteristics of salt, all these things. Uh, but I'm going to save that for another sermon because we had, This would turn into a very long sermon if I tried to do all that right now. Um, But it's what he says right after this declarative sentence that gives us some insight. That again, this is one sermon that has an important implication for where I want to land today in some things he teaches. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse uh, 13. And we're going to look at this statement that he makes. He says, here it is. You are the salt of the earth. And then he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, when you read this, don't read this as if Jesus is, uh, you know, what was the teacher from Ferris Bueller? You know, Bueller, Bueller, like... You're salt, but if you lose your saltiness, then you're just thrown out and trampled. Like, un- like when, when you read Jesus's words, understand that he is like a master teacher. He is using wit, and he is using uh, humor. He's using irony and all of these different things. And, and it's important that we don't treat all of Jesus's teachings like in the exact same way, like with this monotone voice or way. And Jesus is using wit here. Uh, in a really powerful way. I love what he does when he talks about salt losing its saltiness. Because he, here's what uh, everyone in the first century would have known because salt was so important to them in the first century. And it's just this simple truth about salt. And it's this <clears throat> it's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. Like, salt is salty. That, that's what it is. Salt doesn't lose its saltiness. That'd be like me saying, well, that water, that water in your cup just lost its wetness. You'd be like, no, because if it's water, it's wet. That's, that's how water works. Like if, if someone came out and said, man, that was a really dry rain yesterday, you'd be like, yeah, that, we call that wind. That's what that was, right? Yeah. So what is Jesus doing when he says, you know, if salt loses its saltiness, and I, and I love what he does here, because people, like, he's using this irony to drive at something that's important. Um, and it's this. When you and I live uh, in an unsalty way, because that's possible, right? And I'll talk about that in a moment here. Uh, but here's the point. When you and I live in an unsalty way, you're not being you. You're not being who God created and called and declared you to be. And it's possible to do that. It's possible to live outside of who we really are in Christ. Um, For all of the things that Angie and I did to communicate and make sure that Chandler and Colette understood they are unconditionally, unequivocally always loved, do you think there was ever a moment where they lived not out of that? where maybe they lived out of a moment of insecurity or shame or fear. And, well, sure. Just like I've done that, and you've done that. Like, like there's, but what he's wanting us to understand is that is not a failure point of something we must achieve. It's understanding that, that the more we can rest and sit in our truest identity of who he's called us to be, That is what the kingdom looks like. And to say that you and I are the salt of the earth is to say that we have something of great inherent value. Our lives themselves have something to gift and give away that is good in this world. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a moment where you found yourself living in a place outside of who you really were in your relationship with God. Maybe there was a moment that you found yourself living in a kind of shame or fear. Maybe there was something that you acted out on and and you just, you felt overwhelmed with the sense of just like, okay, could maybe, maybe God doesn't love me anymore. Or maybe like, what have I got to do to achieve, you know, being, you know, back in God's good graces or something. And it's just, you remember the weight of that? That's just, a moment of stepping out of outside of who you really are or a moment when you act or do something and you just go, I shouldn't have done that. Like you were stepping outside of your real identity in Christ. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. For Jesus to be teaching this idea of this is who you are in this way and calling us to live out of who we are, that is radical in the first century, that idea was so contrary to what everyone would have understood about religion. And it's like almost like the exact opposite is is what it would have felt like. It would have been like, no, 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 no. Like you're a nothing and you have to earn your way into God's good graces. You need to achieve and do all of these things so that you can be loved by God, right? And Jesus is kind of flipping that around. And so um, the, the notion here would be like Jesus is destroying religion. He's a Abolishing religion. He's coming to set up some new kind of religion, right? He's like, he's throwing out all the old rules and he's going to bring in his new rules because that, this is so radical. That's what that would have felt like. But here's the deal. That's actually not what Jesus is doing here uh, in this moment. It's just, he's getting at something deeper. But like, that is the assumption that people uh, would have drifted toward. And part of it is for this reason. There, there is this strong thing that happens in us when, when we feel like religion in one way or another has failed us. Here's our human tendency. It is to replace that religion with just some other form of another religion. Have you ever done that? Have you ever like had the code set up of like, okay, this is what a good Christian should do? and you lived it out, and you obeyed those things, and it was all really good behaviors. And then months or years later, found yourself going, you know, I don't feel any more inspired. There's no, it's like, I still have this, uh, hunger or there's something that is still empty it didn't work and then like you switch it around and maybe now it's all about I've got to do all the right things that you know I've got to have the right kind of quiet time I've got to pray a certain number I'm going to do these super spiritual thing and you do all of those things and you have these amazing quiet times and you read the whole bible every year nothing wrong with any of that but when it becomes a form of religion like somehow that's the magic formula so that I might experience the kingdom of God. It's just another form of religion, and it leaves you wanting. And it's like Jesus sees the crowd feeling this thing, the radicalness of what he's teaching, and he doesn't want them to just reject the religion they're trying to live and only turn his words into a different kind of religion. And so here's how he responds and and here's here's the next stop on the tour here. And this one is all about what Jesus is not doing and all about what Jesus is doing. And so he says this flip over to your bibles uh, look at uh, verse 17. Here's what he says verse 17. He says, "Do not think do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Why does he say that? Because everyone would have been going, "Wow, he's going you to know, wear the salt and the light of the world. He's, de- he's destroying the law. And he's like, no, 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 no. I know you're thinking that right now, but that's not what I'm doing, right? Because that's not his point. He's, this is about understanding what life is like in the kingdom of God. And that is way more beautiful and way more powerful than any religion or any law, see, Uh, what's interesting is he goes on with great clarity and specificity. You can read this on your own sometime Um, where he describes he is not abolishing the law. He's not abolishing it in part, not even one little part. Like it just, he goes on and on and on. And then he gets down to the end and has this kind of crescendoing statement about how he's not abolishing the law. And, And to be really honest with you, there was a long time in my own spiritual journey where I looked at this next verse, and I'm going to read it to you here in a second, in a very daunting way because I tried to live up to what I thought was a new rule that Jesus was laying out that I had to live up to. And I took it at this kind of face value that missed the aim of what Jesus was trying to to teach, and wanting us to understand. And I'm sure that there are some of you here this morning that are watching this, and there's a part of you that you're going to read what Jesus says next, and it's going to want to pull you into just going deeper into uh, being a good person that's following the rules that you think God is laying out but that's not what Jesus is doing here. And the beauty, and again, he uses wit and he uses irony here. And we'll unpack what he's actually doing in this. that, That in a way, if it's rightly understood, it breaks. It breaks our ability to treat Jesus as a new religion. And it pulls us towards understanding what life and relationship with God is all about. And friends, that is the thing that we want in our souls, because he understands who he created us to be. Now, here's the verse. Here's the verse. So he goes through the whole thing about not getting rid of any part of the law, not big parts, not little parts, nothing. And then he says, and look at verse 20, he says this, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Like, and you can just picture this whole crowd of people and they're like cheering. Yeah, he's going to destroy the law. And then he's like, nope, not going to do that. In fact, if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of the law, like you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And you can just hear the air just, just get sucked out of the room. Although they weren't in a room, they were on a hillside. But you could just, you know, it's just like <sighs> the disappointment. Like, and here's why. You understand, he is talking about a group of people. They took the entire Old Testament and they pulled every possible rule or law you could out of it and said, we're going to follow those. And that's not enough. We're going to make rules about the rules in the Old Testament. We'll even make a few rules about the rules about the rules in the Old Testament. And we are going to lay those out and we are going to follow them. And here's the deal, friends. Many of those scribes and Pharisees, when it came to following the letter of the law, they did it, and they did it perfectly. Paul, one of the New Testament writers, even talks about this, that he was a Pharisee. And in that time of being a Pharisee, he found a way to live this law out perfectly. So the question is, how do you, like, How do you do this? How could you possibly follow the law and surpass, if they lived it perfectly, right? The best you could do would be to equal it. How do you surpass it? Well, maybe Jesus is doing something here that we wouldn't fully understand. Maybe he's breaking something. See, what Jesus is not doing here is trying to abolish the law He's wanting to abolish how we see the law. And when he says your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's breaking something. He is breaking how we would see the law, how we would then ultimately see life and relationship in his kingdom. And that is the thing that we need. We must see relationship and the heart of God as the way to live the spiritual life. That is where Jesus is taking us. But as long as we hang on to the the spiritual life is fundamentally about following these rules, we never fully get to what he means about understanding his heart and what it is to live out of relationship with him. And here's the thing. And I'll explain this more. You'll see this work itself out. Once you understand that, it actually becomes easy. And I do mean easy to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And all of a sudden, you're just like, oh, my gosh, Jesus is a genius, right? Because he was, right? Um, So let's go to the next stop on this tour, right? And this is is where I want us to spend the rest of of our time here, because as we seek to walk out our spiritual lives, there's always this tension that we hold. And it's how we approach that spiritual life, how we approach following God. And and the choice oftentimes comes down to, will I look at the teachings of Jesus and turn them into rules? or another religion, or will I let them reshape my understanding of God's heart and let that speak into who I am and what it would mean to live in relationship with God moving forward? And this one feels like a little undefined. It feels like harder to to really, you know, nail it down. And it is. That's why we always drift to the other but we live in this tension. So now Jesus uh, is on this tour, is going to go through some concrete examples. And I think what he does through these concrete examples is he's, if we're really serious about what he's saying, he breaks our ability to hold on to the spiritual life is something um, that is akin to, if I can just understand what's right and wrong, I'll just follow that. And he keeps pulling us towards understanding God's heart. God's heart? How do I move forward in that? So here's what he does uh, with this. And this one specifically is about this idea of what is it like to live in the kingdom of God when you find yourself in conflict or angry with someone else or someone else who's hurt or angry with you? How do you live that out, right? And we would have all of these different rules we could apply to that. And, but watch what Jesus uh, does with this. So look with me at verse 21. Here's what he does. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And now he's going to quote the Old Testament. Here's one of their rules. Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, right? There's the rule. And now Jesus is going to say, but now I say to you, and we have a choice. We can take what Jesus says here is kind of as a rule or a kind of law that I can live by with the letter and let that move me forward, or I can take it in a different way. What is this saying about God's heart? So look at what it says in in verse 22. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. This is like, you know, not just murder, right? We're just, you're not allowed to be angry. You're angry. You're subject to murder, or excuse me, to judgment, right? And then he makes it a little bit tougher even again. He goes on, he says, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, right? The, 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 Uh, ruling religious council, you're going to go like into a religious court just for saying raka. And raka was a kind of cuss word, okay? Um, And pronounced correctly, it's kind of like you're getting ready to spit, kind of that, and, and you can just imagine in your own mind, not like a little wet spit, but if you were really working up a good spit, right? It's kind of disgusting. That's the whole point of it, right? And he's saying, you do that? You're going before the Sanhedrin, right? But now look at what he does uh, here. Um, it's like he keeps lowering the fault, but, the, but like the, the consequence gets worse and worse. He says, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. I mean, this is just saying fool. This isn't raka. This is just calling someone a fool, not even considered a cuss word. And you're in, like, you know, picture, you know, like a Burger King commercial and they've got the Flame broiled char, you know. It's just like you just picture the flames of hell lipping up at your feet, and you're just like, eh, just for calling someone a fool. Now, right? You can take this and go, oh man, geez this is a serious rule. Don't ever you. We won't even say it out loud, right? Just don't say that word. That's f o o l, right? Don't say that, right? We could make that into a rule. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Is that really what Jesus is saying? Keep your finger in uh, Matthew chapter 5, and now flip over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, because this, here's where it gets kind of confusing on this thing. Matthew 23, look at verse 16. This is Jesus speaking, and he's speaking to a group of religious leaders, right? He says this, Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? Now, anything jump out about you about what Jesus says? Specifically, there's a little name calling in there. He calls them fools, right? So like we were just in chapter 5. In fact, flip back to chapter 5. And Jesus says, man, you call somebody a fool. And like, you know, it's Burger King time, right? Like, what's What's going on, right? How, how do you rectify these two different uh, uh, verses? How do you, what do you do with these two different things that Jesus says, right? Because we've got this choice. I can, I can turn what Jesus is saying into a set of rules, into a new religion, and this is how you live the spiritual life. Or maybe it's something different. So to help us with this, I had some fun this week. I prepared a little quiz, a little quiz that we can all take. But don't worry, I made it multiple choice, okay? Multiple choice. And no one will be grading you. You don't have to write it down. It's just a quiz we'll take in our, uh, in our head. Multiple choice, right? So here's the question, right? Uh, why does Jesus call people fools after he clearly stated you can't call someone a fool? Multiple choice, right? So here's, here's A. Jesus just forgot what he said earlier just slipped his mind, like, forgot he made that rule, he's made a lot of rules, and just, like, slipped his mind, right? Or B, it's okay if Jesus says it, but not us, right? It's the old parent adage, like, do what I say and not what I do, like, right? So what Jesus is saying is, yes, I'm allowed to call people fools, but none of you are allowed to call people fools. That's how this works, right? Or um, uh, C, Jesus had a huge breakfast of pancakes and syrup, and with all these empty calories, his blood sugar crashed, and he just wasn't himself. He just wasn't salty in that moment, right? It's just right? I know I'm the salt of the earth. and then I just I acted out of who I wasn't in that moment. Is that what was going on? Or D, um, I love this one, at least he didn't punch one of them. After all, he did obey the turn the other cheek rule, right? One out of two isn't half bad, right? That's just, right? Or, or E, in both cases, Jesus is leveraging the word fool to help us better understand God's heart about something. Um, Now, my opinion, my opinion, uh, E, E would be the right answer, that in both cases, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And he uses this word fool in both cases to do something that would help us understand something about God's heart. And that is what is most important about how we can experience life and relationship in the kingdom of God. So what is being revealed about God's heart in this passage where where he says, don't call anybody a fool? Well, um, look back at that passage. Because he begins to unfold uh, what he means uh, by this. And again, using wit and irony and and humor uh, even in all of this. So look at verse 23. He says this. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and reconcile to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, right? So he's unfolding this story, and he says, you know, don't call anybody a fool, and And then he unfolds this story that helps us understand what he's doing here, right? And really, this is remarkable. He's saying, in the act of doing this very spiritual thing, you're going to the temple, you are offering a gift to God. This is your act of loving God in a sacrificial way. If you come to be reminded that there's this division, there's this pain, there's this relationship that you have that's in a bad spot, just drop what you're doing for me and go take care of that relationship. Like, think about what he's saying about what you prioritize. This is his heart. See, the reality is he's saying this. The best way to love me is to love others. And doesn't that just fit everything you know of Jesus? The best way to love God is to have a heart to love others. Even when there may be relational strife, even when there may be difficult things. And he's taking us on this tour, right? He's taking us to and he says, "I want you to know this is what the kingdom of God is like. And the kingdom living in the kingdom of God is like this. We love God by loving others. Wherever you look, when you're in the kingdom of God and you're looking around, we find ways of loving God because we're loving others in all of this. And he continues to play this out. And I want to just uh, add some application to this that that kind of jumps out in this passage. Uh, look at what he says, uh, the rest of verse 25. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. And he just plays this out. And again, using a uh, kind of wit and some hyperbole and just taking this to extremes, but there's, he was really bringing out some stuff. Look at the, the recipe. He says, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. Right? This is just, you know, you just weren't getting along. And all of a sudden, you're going to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, who may throw you into prison, right? Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. Like, yeesh. Like this. But understand what he's doing with this, right? And he uses this metaphor of the court. But you know, there's another kind of court, isn't there? There's like the kind of court is, it's the court of our of our opinion or the court of public opinion. There's the court of understanding, of, of how we would hold our opinions and judgments of other people that can become a kind of prison, can't it? And what is he saying? Don't wait. Make, like, Go right away and work towards reconciliation. Otherwise, you can be imprisoned. Maybe not in a literal prison, but you can become imprisoned, like, or we hold people imprisoned with our judgments and our beliefs about them, the things that we render in all of this. See? So, a couple points of application here that I just want to close out on this in applying what would it be like to live out the heart of God in this, right? Because we're always going to have moments where we're going to be angry with someone else, where there's going to be a dispute. Um, But the first thing is don't be right all the way into destroying a relationship, right? It can be so easy to say, but but I'm right about this. I know that like this is, and hang on to that all the way to finding yourself in that prison of whatever kind of prison it is. Because what's more important than getting your way, what's more important than being acknowledged at being right is the relationship. So much so that God says, even if you were given something to me, put it aside because that relationship being able to love someone even when you're in conflict with them that that's loving me relationship first and so maybe as you think about the relationships you're in right now maybe there's one that is strained or in a bad spot maybe the question is getting away from like you know what do i deserve what do they deserve and ask yourself, you know, if I'm the salt of the earth that is meant to bring something good and care, what would that look like? What would it look like to just care? You remember earlier when I said it's actually really easy to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? This is that. The Pharisees could live the letter of the law without ever caring about anyone else. They could, you can obey the rules without having a heart that cares. So here's why it's easy to surpass their righteousness. The second you just say, okay, I just care. I don't know what I'm gonna do next, but I just, I'm going to care. You in that moment just surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's why I think Jesus could say what he said earlier. Uh, another point of um, application in here is this. Treat them with care and concern, regardless of who is right or wrong. We get so hung up on this so easily, so often. Uh, but you know what's missing out of this story that Jesus tells? Who was, which party was right and which party was wrong? It's because it's, it's irrelevant right? And there's so often that we get hung up on who is right and who is wrong. And what he's saying is, you, you hang on to who, who we know is right and who is wrong, and, and you can walk being right all the way into being in some sort of relational prison where the relationship is destroyed, and you're the one that is losing out. What I love about what Jesus does in this story, he walks out what happens to you and me. And understand, he means this in a caring way. He doesn't want to see us in that place. So don't hang on to right or wrong at the cost of being right and losing the relationship. Because that will, it will put you in your own kind of prison in this. Uh, third thing is this. Um, and, and it's really applying these first two to just a little greater degree. And it's this, withhold your judgments about their motives and character. And here's why I say this one in the most practical of ways. Here's what, here's what happens when we hang on to being right. When we, when we and, and I see it playing out in our world right now, right? Think for just a moment where you feel that conflict. Maybe it's in a place of someone that you know. Who, who is the closest person to you? where you have kind of this conflict that is brewing. Where's that right now? Have you ever thought about how easy it is to assume a less than positive motive about that person? Yeah, because you, like, you feel the conflict. Um, now, let me take it the other direction. What person or group of persons, you may not even know their names, that is furthest from you relationally but you feel the disagreement with them, right? Uh, maybe it's a different generation, right? It's that younger generation, right? You know, just like you know, you know, they need to hear the you know work hard kind of thing. They need, you know, they feel privileged. They feel, and we have all of these things that we can say about the younger generation. Or maybe it's the older generation, right? You know, you know you know, okay, Ken, okay, uh, Carol, or, you know, whatever. Right. We have all of those names that we use in those things that we can say that is like, um, and it's really casting that sense of judgment on that other generation because we've lumped them together and we're assuming things about their character. And what happens is there's something we disagree about on how we see things or what we think should be done. And it goes from just in a disagreement about how we would do things to a disagreement about motive behind it. And then from a disagreement about motive, it goes to, well, the only reason they would have that bad motive is because there's something wrong with their character. And I see it in our world today, whether it's in how we look at different generations, you for sure see it in politics. You see it in families, you see it in states, in communities, where we can take a whole group of people that maybe we just disagree with how they view something or how they would want to solve a problem, but we assign ill motives and ill character to them. And all we're doing is creating our own little prison and trying to lock them up in it. And we're not being salt and light. And all we're doing is we're inviting them to throw us in their little prison. And all that means as followers of Christ is we're just being salt that's lost its saltiness. We're like everything else in this world. And the beauty of what Jesus is teaching in this is that his followers are to live in his kingdom with an identity of being the salt of the earth, that we would look at this, and the second we see that conflict, that thing that would want to go south, that the place we'd go is like, okay, how can I assume something better about that person? How can I let go of right or wrong? How can I bring the thing that unites and doesn't separate, right? If you look at what Jesus is teaching in this one, you know, the little stop on the tour we ended with here, his heart is the opposite of, pushing people apart where they judge people so much that they would throw them in prison. But it is reconciliation. And so my challenge for all of us, whether it's in relationships that are one-on-one in our family, our neighborhoods, or our friends, or in what it means to belong to a larger community in Arizona or this country, what are we doing that helps people around us Connect and unite to people they might most naturally want to reject or lower their credibility or lower their sense of character. How do we assume the best and be a uniting impact wherever we are? Because to be that, well, that's simply to take on the heart of God. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we just thank you for who you are, and we thank you for who you've declared us to be. And God, we've just gotta say, sometimes living out who we are as the salt of the earth can be so very difficult. But I would ask that that you give us wisdom, that you, in a spiritual way, transfer and fill our hearts with your cares and your concerns. That we might have eyes to see, even those that we disagree with, the way you see them. That we would see the best in them. That we would see who you are in them and what you're doing. That we can be salt in this world. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.